Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. All right, today our guests are Sergei Idunov and Lyle Ott, who are researchers at Facebook AI Research. And they're here to talk to us about a paper that recently got accepted at NACL 2018 called Classical Structured Prediction Losses for Sequence-to-Sequence Learning. Sergey and Lyle, welcome. Hello. So last episode, we talked with Sam Wiseman about a paper on beam search optimization, which is when we have sequence models or structured prediction models, there are often better ways to train them than simply maximizing log likelihood at the token level. And your paper continues very much in this vein, but does, I guess what I got out of this paper was it's a much more thorough exploration of the options here. And you ran a whole bunch of experiments. Is that a fair characterization of this work? Yeah, I think so. So what to you um, is the difference between token level losses and structured prediction losses? Why is this an important issue? Yeah, so, so as you mentioned, people typically optimize these token level or, or non-structured losses. Um, so you find this in kind of simple classification or regression problems where your, your output is more or less just a, a single scalar. Um, so in the context of machine translation, you might train a model to, say, predict the next word in the translation conditioned on the source sentence that you're translating and maybe the, the, the previous uh, words in the translation that you've already produced. But this is basically a multi-class classification problem. But what we ultimately want is a model that can produce good sequences. And so one way you can achieve this is by... Um, Instead of optimizing sort of this multi-class classification problem, you can uh, optimize these so-called structured prediction losses. So these are losses that are defined at a sequence level and over basically the entire space of possible outputs, um, not just individual tokens. Um, and there's a couple of reasons you might want to do this. If, if I should go into those. Yep. So like one of the one of the main um, advantages of doing this is that um, it can let you opt optimize sort of more complicated metrics than token level training. So an example of this is uh, in machine translation, we use a metric called blue. Uh, so blue is basically a function of how, how similar your translation is to the gold or reference translation, um, but it can't be decomposed into token level loss. Uh, so uh, if you wanted to optimize something like that, uh, you might consider using a structured prediction loss instead. And the second kind of advantage of these structured prediction losses is that they address this problem known as exposure bias. Uh, so that's this concern that when you're doing standard token level training, um, where you're trying to basically predict the next translated word conditioned on the previous translated words, you basically give the model the ground truth translated prefix at each step. But at test time, when you no longer have access to a, a ground truth translation, we instead give the model its own predictions, which can be distributed quite differently than the ground truth translation and uh, can potentially like propagate translation errors. So with these sequence level losses, um, you can train the model based on its own outputs, uh, which hopefully addresses this exposure bias problem too. So um, generation tasks are, are difficult, right? And uh, I noticed that all the experiments that you've run uh, or based on uh, generation tasks. So I'm curious if you tried the same losses on other sequence 
prediction tasks like for speech tagging or name its recognition? Yeah, I don't think we have uh, yet, but I mean, that would be interesting certainly to try. And I think a lot of the earlier work in structured prediction um, looked at some of those tasks as well. But there's nothing fundamental uh, that prevents us from applying the same losses to these tasks. No, yeah. No. And in fact, your paper titled Classical Structured Prediction Losses. These, these are losses that were in fact used previously on many different problems, right? So yeah. that's probably, a, this is probably a good point then to talk about what you mean by classical structured prediction loss. What, what are you talking about here? Yeah, that's, uh, that's fair. So there's no sort of standard, I think, definition of, of classical. <laughs> we're mostly referring to these structured prediction losses that were kind of explored in the, the 90s, early 2000s, often in the context of kind of log linear models, tasks, you know, some of you mentioned named entity recognition um, or other like sequence tagging tasks, parsing, OCR, stuff like that. But many of these, these losses um, kind of haven't really been tested in, in more modern like neural sequence to sequence models. I think the beam search optimization work you mentioned uh, probably also can be considered classical in some sense from the, the, I think the learning and search optimization work, but it's not quite structured in the same way. Right. So then your point is, hey, there's been, there was a whole lot of work back decades ago that did some really cool stuff on making better structured models. We've kind of forgotten about them in the days of neural seek to seek models. Let's rethink this and see if they actually help. Right? Yeah, I think that's fair. So what are exactly these losses that you talk about in the paper? So the main idea behind all of those losses is that you uh, generate a set of sequences and you score them, right? And then you want to make sure that the best sentence, however you define the best, is getting the highest score and everything else is getting the lower scores. In particular, you're interested in sentences that are reachable by your model, by the beam search, right? Well, the details, how exactly you push the sentences up or down uh, depends on the loss. Well, we considered five different losses, I think. So let me briefly go over uh, a few of them. The one that stands out is sequence negative log likelihood. It's different from everything else because it doesn't take into account uh, the raw blue score. What it takes into account instead is the relative order of the sequences that you generate. And in effect, it's just a cross-entropy, but applied to the sequence level instead of token level, okay? Uh, the next loss that is interesting is expected risk. Uh, the idea behind this loss is, again, pretty straightforward. You want to make sure that you want to optimize expected risk of uh, sequences that your model produces, expected cost or expected blue in our case. And what we found is that this loss works best across a set of across a wide range of different tasks and data sets. Then we consider a bunch of margin losses, such as max margin. Uh, what this loss does, it enforces the margin between the highest scoring candidate sequence and the correct sequence, right? And in our case, uh, we use pseudo-reference. And then there comes multi-margin losses, which is essentially extension of idea of max margin, but you want to, here you want to enforce margin between all the sequences you produce and the best and the reference. One common theme here is the idea of generating a bunch of candidate outputs and using them to define the loss function. Could you tell us a little more about how you do that? So we use beam search and we tried different beam sizes. 
And the way we do it, we take our model, uh, then we apply beam search to generate a set of hypotheses. And these are our candidates. We score them according to our model. And we also uh, measure their blue scores to figure out which one is our best hypothesis. So just to make the distinction here between this token level loss and the sequence loss a little bit more clear, I, I thought we could dive a little more deeply into the sequence level uh, negative log likelihood loss here. The token level loss assumes you have a model that decomposes at every time step. You have a locally normalized prediction, every word that you're outputting. And so you can define your loss just at every time step, right? right? And then the sequence level loss says, instead of defining the loss at every word, or uh, instead of defining a probability distribution over each token individually, I'm going to define a probability distribution over sequences. And I'm going to take, I'm going to have my loss try to put the correct sequence above all other possible sequences. Correct. The, the trouble there is that there's an exponential number of possible other sequences. And so uh, how do you actually do this maximization? And so we're, the, the reason for this candidate that you need this candidate set that Wally was talking about was um, I need some way to manage this exponential set. Is that fair? Yes, it's a fair point. Uh, yeah, of course, it's an approximation. So we don't compute those exact losses because our well search space is exponential in terms, in terms of number of tokens in a sequence. So what we do instead is we generate a set of sequences that are actually reachable by model, and we try to improve those particular sequences. So we tried different set sizes. We tried to go, I think, to beam 64. But majority of our experiments we did with beam size 5. So our search space is uh, relatively small compared to the entire space of possible sentences. So the idea of using uh, the pseudo-reference, I think, is very compelling. But I don't see why we cannot apply it in the token level losses. So we can easily extend the talk, like the first loss function that you uh, use as a baseline, the talk NLL, to instead of uh, optimize the performance for individual, the, the observed uh, tokens, uh, you'd observe, you'd maximize the, the pseudo-reference token. Yeah, actually, I can talk a bit about that. I think. Um... Let me make sure I understand the, the proposal. So uh, you're saying we can basically take the highest scoring beam output and then train the model in sort of the standard token level um, using this uh, against this beam output. Right. I'm curious if that's the key, like that's, that's one of the key things that's, that's improving the performance. And then we would like to know uh, how, how, how well it does work. Yeah. I mean, so there's actually this really cool paper I think by uh, Yoon Kim about this, uh, it's like sequence level knowledge distillation, um, where they do basically this. Uh, you, you take the output from, so you say you can take the maximum scoring hypothesis, or um, you can take the hypothesis that has the, the best, say, blue score, um, and train a model at the token level with this. I think they motivated their work more with the idea of having like a smaller student network that could match the distribution of the, the teacher. but um, or not match the distribution, but sort of reproduce similar outputs. But yeah, I mean, I think it seems to work quite well. Um, in, in our context, I think it's a little bit, a little bit different. I think the in an ideal world, uh, our losses, uh, you know, as, as you guys mentioned, are, are defined over the entire space of possible outputs, and, and it's because we're using this approximation, uh, namely like a subset of candidates that uh, we find, say, via beam search, we 
use a pseudo reference um, more for practical reasons. Uh, because if you include the actual reference in the candidate set, um, but the reference is not reachable by the model, uh, you get this kind of, you, you often find this kind of generate solution where the model scores the reference very highly, but can't actually produce it. That's really interesting because I, I'm not sure what you mean by can't actually produce it because all of these models are, it's just a choice from the vocabulary at every time step and the vocabulary is always the same. So it can always produce the reference, right? What, what, am, what am I missing here? So it, it can produce it in a literal sense. Uh, I just mean that it won't be generated via, say, beam search. Interesting. With small beams. So, yeah, the, this notion of the pseudo-reference, that was really interesting, and I, I, I wasn't quite sold, but I guess that this kind of makes sense. So in, instead of, like, you have the result of, of your beam search, and instead of taking my reference, which may not be on the beam, and saying, please take all of the probability mass that you put, assign it to things on the beam and assign it to the reference instead, or push it towards the reference, you're saying, find the best thing on the beam and push all of the probability mass towards the best thing. And let's hope that next time I do a search, I get something better on the beam next time. Is that kind of the intuition for what's going on here? Yeah, exactly. Interesting. I mean, since, uh, so uh, let me push on this a little bit more. Since the probability, so uh, uh, let's talk about the sequence NLL loss. Uh, I think that probability distribution for the entire sequence decomposes into the individual uh, outputs. So it's really not different from the token level. The only reason that using the uh, so the reference helps that for these outputs, where the model is not, uh, where where the tokens are not uh, in the in the candidate uh, in the, in the k-best in the in the beam, the, the model will assign a probability of zero to them, and that's the same problem that you would have in the token level NLL. Yeah, so there's a couple differences, I guess, between the sequence level NL and the token level NL. Um, so yeah, I mean. Certainly, uh, we, because of our approximation of, of the output space with this candidate set, essentially assigning zero probability to the rest of the space. But uh, the other difference is that the loss, we actually compute sort of the same gradient for all tokens in the sequence, uh, whereas with token level, we compute a separate gradient per token. Um, so it, it is a little bit different in that sense as well. A bit more on the difference uh, between computing the gradient for in these two cases? Yeah, so the, the gradient for the sequence level NLL is basically the same for all tokens in the sequence, right? Like, but for token level NLL loss, we have each token gets its own, has its own target and its own gradient. So each token in a sequence gets a different gradient, right? But in the in the sequence level, uh, it's an aggregation. It's it's really the submission of the individual tokens, right? Yes. So that's uh, practically if you batch the token uh, level likelihood, log likelihood objective, you'll get the same effect. Except uh, I think in the sequence level, you also normalize uh, for the length of the sequence. Uh, so in the sequence level, we do normalize for the the length of the sequence, and I mean we're we're computing it over the the sequence level. Probability, right? So it's it's a product of of the token level probabilities. Cool. So uh, we've talked about some of the loss functions that you did. You also did some combinations of losses. Is that right? Have people done these combinations before? Like, can you tell us what what the combinations are that you did? So what we did is we well, what we found is that if you apply 
fewer sequence level losses. They are kind of less stable. In a sense, uh, model again can learn kind of discriminate and assign a high score to the uh, well, highest sequence, but that it does not. Well, let's consider sequence uh, sequence negative log likelihood, right? It only cares about relative order. So as long as that model can produce, can assign high score to the top sequence in the beam, it's perfectly happy. Uh, and it doesn't need to really push that sequence uh, up. Uh, it doesn't need to make sure that this sequence is assigned a high post score, right? What we found is that combination with token level likelihood works uh, as a kind of regularizer. It kind of makes this training more stable. It keeps the model in some particular range, uh, which uh, we found useful. So we tried different ways to combine sequence level loss and token level objectives. And they all work roughly the same. What we ended up doing is just sum up uh, sequence level loss and token level loss for uh, entire sequence with particular weight. And when we optimized that weight on a dev set. Um, so I guess a particular nasty failure case you could imagine if you don't have this token level loss would be like I, I find something that has a really high blue score but is totally ungrammatical, right? Is that, is that a good characterization of what's going on? So with sequence negative log likelihood, the particular nasty case is that you find sequences but uh, have very low blue score, right? But the model runs them correctly, effectively, right? So you produce, let's say, 10 sequences. And well, the highest sequence, according to your model, also has a highest blue score. But that blue score turns out to be very low. And since all that loss is, but since that everything that loss cares about is the relative order of the sequences, it's perfectly happy uh, with this result. Yeah, and that, that's only true because you're using the pseudo reference instead of the actual target, right? Yeah, but if we use actual target, then again, model learns how to discriminate between target and its own output. And it, it is happily assigns high score to the target, but low score for everything else. But so, for, for instance, uh, optimizing or minimizing expected risk will tend to drive up blue score because the, the blue score itself is part of the loss. And so it won't have this problem where it's happy to just have a ranking. But you, but still, if you don't have some token level feedback, maybe you'll get something that like it finds good good sequences that that optimize blue, but aren't good from a language model or grammaticality perspective. Mm -hmm. Is that yeah? Risk actually works reasonably well. So we had some experiments with pure risk loss. It still improves results. Uh, but what we found is that combination uh, of token level loss and risk performs much better. And this is maybe getting ahead of ourselves just a little bit, but it's about time to move to this anyway. For a, you say minimizing risk, uh, expected risk works well on its own, but actually what you did was you pre-trained with the token level loss in the first place, right? Right. And so it's not technically on its own, even in the case that you're talking about. Yeah, that's correct. Well, we also tried to train from scratch uh, using those losses. But again, we use the combination of token level loss and sequence level losses in those cases. And it works reasonably well. But again, uh, it, it doesn't work as well as uh, when you fine-tune already trained model. And you should also take into account the computational cost. Because those losses, the most expensive part uh, is generation of sequences, right? So 
for example, we trained our baseline model for 200 epochs, right? And if you want to do similar thing with sequence level losses, you have to kind of do same amount of training. It's quite expensive to do these things. So fine-tuning already well-trained model makes sense from the cost uh, uh, perspective. Interesting. So uh, I guess now's a good time to talk about the experiments that you ran. What did you do? How well did these things work? What we found effectively, but most of those losses perform very similarly. While the risk kind of stands out, it works a little bit better than everything else, but the difference is not huge. It was also very surprising to find that those classical losses uh, perform and compete with modern techniques like beam search optimization. Well, as, as long as you keep the same baseline, of course. It, it's almost like the stuff that we did back in the day actually is useful, and it's, it's a bad idea to forget all of that stuff when you go to neural nets. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> totally true. So I was going to ask, uh, since the performance is not that much different according to uh, your results, practically speaking, what would you recommend, especially around uh, runtime, like the, like the cost of actually running these experiments? So in practical terms, what I would recommend is, well, these losses, they perform really well on small data sets, right? So, and there are use cases where you have low resource languages in case of machine translation, where they can really help uh, you improve your results. So yeah, they are quite expensive. Another thing that could be done to actually, well, well, in a practical sense, is some combination of online and offline generation. In our experiments, we actually used online generation, and we compared it to offline. But it's totally possible to do some combination of those two. Let's say you can generate your sentences once in a while, and then do several uh, updates of, and then do several updates of model. So there are things that you can do to uh, make this training faster. So I I don't know that we've talked about what the difference is between online and offline generation, but what did you mean there? So in online generation, basically on every forward pass, you compute your you, you generate your sequences, and then you compute your sequence-level losses with respect to those uh, generated sequences, right? What you can do instead is you can take your model, and original model, and just generate sequences for your entire data set, and then just reuse those sequences uh, through entire training. So you mean basically do beam search with your initial model and never update the beam, and just use that as as the the set of things you're optimizing against. Do you have a sense? Do you have a sense of how much we lose if we do the offline only? Yeah, I think we have a table. So in our results, we lose 0.4 blue on both valid and test if we switch to offline mode. But it's much faster. Interesting. That loss. I'm trying. I'm looking at the the other results. That's almost as big as the gain. That you get from using these losses in the first place is that right correct yeah so it's almost like if you if you do this if you use a stale model to do beam search you're almost just as bad off as if you or maybe i'm reading the tables wrong yeah it slightly improved your baseline but it doesn't improve it uh as much as online generation any other highlights you want to point out from the results in the paper well, another thing that we noticed is that those losses perform really well when your model is weak enough. 
And again, if you train uh, your baseline model until it's very strong, then the marginal improvements that you get from applying the sequence level losses is relatively small. But that was an interesting finding. Yes, that's it. Maybe Mile wants to add something. No, I think that, that that's exactly right. Yeah. So uh, it's hard to count even how many experiments there are in this paper. How long did you spend? Like, how much compute time did you spend running all of these experiments? So we didn't track uh, exactly how much time the entire project took, but it's kind of an advantage of working in an in industry research lab at Square, where we have access to all this infrastructure and awesome engineering or awesome engineers who can help us make these kind of large-scale projects. Yeah, we, we actually found a lot of engineering challenges while doing this effort. And for example, to make this thing work on a large data set, WMT English to French, we had to implement distributed training in FERSI, and it is now available on our GitHub for everyone to use. Yeah, this is, I, I was thinking about that too, like someone at the uni university would almost certainly not, not have the resources to do this kind of experiments. So I, I noted happily that you even have standard deviations reported for one of the main results in your paper. So like you ran multiple runs, accounted for training variants. Like this, this would take an enormous amount of time. So it's, it is really useful to have a really comprehensive set of experiments from someone that has the capacity to do this. So thanks for this. It's really nice. Right, I will add that this is one of my favorite kinds of papers where uh, instead of trying to argue for the latest and the, the greatest uh, loss function or model, it tries to take a broader picture and uh, analyze uh, existing things and try to come to conclusions. So thank you for that. As my last question, do you have any practical tips for someone who doesn't have access to all of the engineering support that you did on like any pitfalls that you might run into when you're implementing this stuff? Well, yeah, uh, as I already mentioned, it's, it would be nice to have, think of some smart combination of online and offline generation. As I mentioned, online is very expensive. Uh, offline is very cheap, but gives worse results. Uh, maybe some combination of those two will really work better. See, one other you know, thing we, we had to implement like a lot of loss functions uh, in this work, right? And so, I mean, just generally testing, <laughs> testing your losses is important. And if you're able to try taking a small subset of your training set and, and overfit that, right? And make sure that um, the loss is actually doing what you want. That's another thing that was, was pretty helpful uh, when approaching this. Cool. Any last thoughts before we conclude? No. Okay. Great. Th thanks for coming on the show. It was really nice talking to you. Really nice paper.